get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. ever thought about why people act the way they do? Why are some people more difficult to deal with, while others are always pleasant? Let's find out together. Welcome to Human Behavior. What a trip. Your host is Dr. Jonathan Brower. Our program combines expert guests with people just like you who have questions or comments. We'll have fun exploring human behavior. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Brower. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Jonathan Brower. My show is called Human Behavior, What a Trip. We're going to have a wonderful trip today with an interesting man who uh, has written a wonderful book called The Perfect Meal in Search of the Lost Taste of France. The uh, author of the book is John Baxter. Welcome to the show, John Baxter. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Good. So I'll call you John. You can call me Jonathan. Well, please do, unless you'd prefer I call you doctor. No, no, I like you to call me Jonathan. Jonathan, it is. And I'll call you John. So, uh, Please. Uh, before we get to um, what you do as a chef and make great meals, you also have been a, a film critic for a certain number That's of years. That's right, yes. That was what I started out as, actually. Uh-huh. No, actually, I started out as a science fiction writer, but for most of my working life, yes, I, was, I wrote about the cinema. I see. And then uh, how many years later did you get in uh, touch with gourmet food? Uh, well, I've always been an eater, of course, <laughs> uh, yeah. and uh, my father was a pastry cook, so I grew up with food, but I didn't begin to write about food and about uh, my life in Paris until I moved here, which is now 23 years ago. I see. So um, roughly in uh, two, in uh, 1980... 1989, in fact, I, I arrived here. What? 1990? Yeah, pretty well. 1989, the very end of 1989. In fact, I've written a book about my first Christmas uh, in France called Immovable Feast, a Paris Christmas, which is all about cooking um, a Christmas dinner for my French family. So it's, uh, it's a date fixed in my mind, okay. uh, Christmas 1989. So, um, uh, so you grew up as a child in Australia? That's right. And what part of Australia did you live in? In Sydney. I see. And uh, I, I like to ask my guests, if we can take about two minutes or so, how was growing up for you where you lived? Um, I didn't much like Australia, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, I always was a bookish kind of boy. Uh, I didn't like sports. Yeah. Um, and so Australia was absolutely the wrong 
country for me. It's a very sporty nation. Yeah. Um, so I was very um, isolated as a as a young man, and and was very happy to move away uh, to live in Europe, and then and then to live in the United States, uh, and finally in France. Uh huh. So I'm curious to know when you were a uh, a young man, uh, you know, say in your late teens, early twenties, in Australia, did you um, chug down a lot of beer? No, I, I was never a beer drinker. I, uh, luckily, uh, I, I began to get interested in drinking just about when Australian wine began to emerge, just after the first uh, uh, European uh, vintners uh, started up the Australian wine industry. So I, I was in at the very beginning of that, uh, uh-huh. and it went very well with my cooking. Yes. So um, when you moved to France, you were how old? Oh, this is relative. Well, I was, I was uh, in my fifty, late forties, actually. But before that, I'd lived uh, away from Australia for many years. In fact, I moved here from Los Angeles. Uh, that's where I was living. Uh, oh, really? When I, I, went I, to I grew up in Los Angeles in Hollywood. I grew up in Hollywood. Well, lucky you. I'd lived in Westwood. I was, uh, I was very happy there. I really enjoyed myself. Yes, I, I used to go play in Westwood a lot because I'd go to the UCLA and and do things on their uh, playing fields. Right. Well, that was one of the great things for me, of course, that I was living on Veteran and I could walk up uh, to the top of Veteran, walk onto the UCLA campus and uh, uh, there were some extraordinary concerts and uh, performances and I had good friends there. So I I was sort of in some ways sad to tear myself away. But I think that in Paris, I found my my spiritual home. So before we talk about you getting to Paris... um how did you end up in Westwood? What brought you there? Uh, I was married to a, an American girl, and uh, we got divorced, uh, but luckily I got a green card, and I, I thought um, I would probably be uh, be happier away from Australia, living in Los Angeles, which had always been my dream as a, as a film historian. Yeah. And so I went there with uh, the idea of being a screenwriter, and uh, I had some success uh, in that and uh, began to write a lot about um, about films but also I became the uh, Los Angeles correspondent of the, the magazine Gourmet Traveler which uh-huh. meant that I got to eat a lot of interesting food and yeah. uh, it gave me an insight into uh, into the lifestyle of California. Yes, yeah, so um, I've, a friend of mine and I, we've written a couple of screenplays but we haven't gotten them sold, probably never will. So you actually had a screenplay that uh, you got sold and got uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, we we a, really a terrible science fiction movie uh, called Time Guardian, but it had uh, Carrie Fisher from uh, Star yeah. Wars in it. Uh, it had uh, Dean Stockwell. Um, it, it 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 had some success uh, uh, mainly on television and yeah, so well, on. But you. it was a. I'm sorry. Well, good for you. Did you ever get? Um, did they ever play the reruns of the movie, and then you get a few cents? And uh, I suppose I, I I don't know maybe I do I don't think so oh. I'd have to ask my agent but okay. it's not that it's not that happy an experience to think back on writing screenplays is a is a very uh, as you can imagine it's a very uh, uh, soul destroying uh, experience if you're not one of the great uh, I'm sorry it's also very iffy the chances of uh, somebody purchasing a screenplay is a very low probability. 
Yes, it's true, except, of course, a lot of the work you get is for screenplays that, that never get made, but you're paid all the same. Yes. All right. So then um, you, you left Los Angeles, and then you went to France, or was there some other stop before France? No, no, I, I, I came to France. I, 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 was, I met a, a girlfriend, an old girlfriend of mine, and uh-huh. uh, uh, we decided to, uh, that uh, I would move to France to live with her, and uh, uh, that's where I've been ever since. And you've been in Paris? Mm-hmm, Paris, where I am now. Yeah, so um, i got to ask you, um, so as soon as you literally walked on French soil, the ground, we'll say, did you have some wonderful experience in your body? Um, I, in, in one sense, I did, because uh, my wife-to-be's uh, apartment was directly over a restaurant, uh-huh. so I was brought into touch very quickly with, with French cuisine. I could watch people eating below our windows, and, and that encouraged me to begin cooking myself. So you could watch them, and you also could smell the food. Yes, you could. No, not not in an unpleasant way. Oh, yeah, uh, not exactly because it was, uh, no. no, it was. It was. Yes, I could. I was right. I was thrown into the the very center of the of the food business in France. Yes. Now, now when you arrived in Paris, you didn't immediately know you were going to be a uh, chef and make gourmet meals, right? No, no. Well, I'm, I'm, I suppose I am a chef. I'm a, I'm a chef by avocation. It's my hobby. I don't, uh, I don't make money from it. I enjoy cooking and eating and writing about it. But no, I, that wasn't what I planned to do. In fact, what I began to do was write about cinema again. I wrote a, a, a biography of the uh, Italian filmmaker Federico Fellini. Uh huh. Yes, he's famous. Yes, he was famous and he was very kind. He, uh, he, uh, he agreed to uh, meet with me and to uh, um, cooperate on the book and it was a big success and just came out before he died. I see. So after that I did a succession of film books. And then what did you uh, end up doing after your, your fling with uh, the cinema went away? Oh, it didn't go away. I, I kept at it. I wrote uh, biographies of uh, of Louis Bunuel, of George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, oh, Woody Allen, Stanley Kubrick, Robert De Niro, uh, Joseph von Sternberg. Oh, these were all autobiographies, right? Biographies, oh, yes. Biographies. biographies. And you were mm-hmm. the and you were the author. Well, that's great. And that's right. That, yeah, the world that how was you uh, made most of your income. Writing these yes. books, yeah, exactly. And I cooked. I cooked as a hobby. Yeah. So when you were writing these books, I'm always interested about this. I've, I've written a couple of books, but um, when you're writing your books, do you usually find it to be easy and fun, or do you find that you have these spots where it's kind of dead and you're getting nowhere? How would you describe that? I don't have much trouble writing. Touchwood. I, I enjoy it. I always have. Uh-huh. I particularly enjoyed. Writing about cinema because I could uh, I could meet these people and meet uh, uh, people who'd worked with them and and that's uh, that's exciting. It's a yeah. kind of uh, uh, it's a sort of detective story writing yeah. a biography of these people because they all to some extent had secret lives and and I enjoyed digging into that. Yes, and uh, were there any particular people you would have liked to have written about that you have not yet written about? 
No, I, I, I stopped writing about the, the cinema because I'd, I'd written about all the people that, uh, that uh, I, I found interesting. Um, once I'd done Robert De Niro, who is uh, immensely complicated and secret person, yes. I didn't really think I was going to improve on that. So after that, what did you do for income when you wrote your last biography? Well, then I began to write about Paris and my I life here. And so when you're writing about Paris, is it everyday things, or are you writing about specific um, people in Paris? How does it work? Um, well, I, I began just writing about my own experience as a, as a stranger in Paris, somebody who didn't know anything, couldn't speak the language. Uh-huh. And then I, I wrote about the way in which uh, I, w- I found I could communicate through food because I the see. French love to eat. Yes. Uh, and and I found that my family, I, by chance, I'd married into a family of of intellectuals and artists, none of whom could cook. I see. Uh, and uh, their Christmas dinners were absolutely dreadful. So I, for my uh, second Christmas here, I volunteered to cook Christmas dinner for the family of twenty people. So wow. uh, I found myself facing this uh, this uh, incredible task of having to satisfy. 20 very demanding French people, and uh, they were so happy that I continued cooking uh, Christmas dinner for them for the next 10 years. So when you would, when, when you would have these big parties, these, did you, were, you, were, you, were you the only one, or did you have other people helping you? Um, I like to cook by myself, uh, uh, but uh, I did have I did have uh, friends helping me. Marie Dominique, my wife, uh, was was very helpful. But uh, uh-huh. she's not a cook, but she's uh, she's very efficient organizer as a as uh-huh. a documentary filmmaker. That's and useful, yeah. uh, but I, I with a lot of preparation and and help from very good butchers, very good uh, suppliers of produce, I was able to. Uh, if I spent three or four days on it, I was able to do it all myself. Uh huh. So the book you've uh, recently uh, finished, it's now out for people to buy, it's called The Perfect Meal in Search of a Lost Taste of France. Exactly. So tell us how you came up with that title. Well, um, it was odd. Uh, UNESCO, the United Nations Cultural Organization, uh, d- declared the French uh, uh, cuisine an, uh, a nas- international uh, treasure, like uh, the Serengeti, uh, you know, uh, national park, or yes. uh, or a Yellowstone, or uh, uh, you know, something that has to be preserved for the good of mankind. Yes. and uh, I thought it was ironic that. Um, uh, the, the sort of cuisine that they were talking about really hardly exists any longer uh, for most people because restaurants simply don't uh, uh, cater for the sort of elaborate meals that, that are the basis of, of great French cooking. So I, I wanted to go out into the countryside, into the regions, uh-huh. and find whether these great dishes still existed. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I was very fortunate. We traveled around uh, uh, France for a year and uh, discovered uh, in all sorts of strange corners that, that these dishes were still cooked and uh, the, that the ingredients still existed and uh, people were eating the, the dishes that, that I'd only read about and which I couldn't eat in, in Paris. I see. So I have here, um, oh, I, I know about bouillabaisse. That's seafood stew that only tastes right if you eat it by a Mediterranean. That's what you say. 
That's right. And then you say the secret is an ugly fish called the rascasse. Is that how you say it? Rascasse, yeah. Rascasse. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's odd. It, it, was a, it was a stew made specifically of the fish that were left over uh, at the end of the day when the fishermen had sold all the good-looking fish. There uh-huh. were these little, rather misshapen, odd-looking things and bits of seafood, bits of shellfish, which no one wanted. Yeah. And so the, the fish... The fishermen would just toss them into uh, a large pot with some olive oil, garlic, uh, some vegetables uh, and white wine and stew it up and that would be their, their lunch or their dinner. And uh, bouillabaisse means, means just to cook slowly, basically. Yeah, so it's uh, a lot of very um, healthy food. I mean, you're getting a lot of protein with the... With a different food, oh yes, right? well the Mediterranean diet is is extremely healthy because it doesn't use butter, uh, yeah. it uses olive oil, uh, uh, uses very very little uh, very little saturated fats, mostly based on vegetables uh, and seafood. So yes, extremely healthy. Yes, so um, I, I've been to France once, um, and uh, I didn't notice some very many people who were obese, and. Uh, a lot of people in France drink wine, and the amount of people who are um, alcoholics is very low. So there's something going on that's pretty good in France. Yes, this is true. It's it's one of those uh, those great puzzles. But uh, I think you've put your finger on it. It's uh, the the people do do drink wine, but they don't drink don't drink it to excess. Uh, and uh, people do like to eat, but they don't eat to excess. They don't eat um, uh, a lot of hamburgers. They don't eat a lot of, uh, of French fries, not a lot of bread, not a yes. lot of sugar, very little sugar. Yes. Speaking of French fries, uh, did French fries begin in France or did they begin in the United States? Oh, I think it's one of these these things that probably sprang up all over the world at the same time. Wherever the potato arrived, and the idea of frying it uh, probably yeah. came to mind. Uh, certainly, French fries in in France are very different to French fries uh, in the United States, as you've probably found. Yes. So the French fries in France are more like slices of potato. Yes, much more. They're usually hand cut, and they're not cooked. Uh, not cooked so so much. They're not uh, sort of thin and crunchy. They're more more meaty, more more potatoey. Yes, and then uh, for all the years you've been in Paris, did you do most of your transportation by walking, or did you take taxis, or have a car? How'd you do that? Well, no, I'm a walker. In fact, the, my last book before uh, the Perfect Meal was was called The Most Beautiful Walk in the World, and uh-huh. it's all about walking in Paris. And it was a considerable success in the United States. And uh, in fact, uh, I give walking tours uh, around Paris uh, uh, frequently, two or three a week. And um, the people I take around are very often Californians who yes. have read. The most beautiful walk in the world, and uh, they want to follow in in the, my footsteps. So I find, in fact, Americans once they get here and you get them down onto the pavement, they just love to walk. Yes. So uh, are you fairly thin and uh, lean and all that? No, not at all. I'm overweight. That's why I walk. I think it's good for me. My doctor said it would be good if I got some exercise. Good. So uh, I thought this was a good way of getting exercise and keeping it interesting. So have you lost some weight while you've been walking? 
Uh, I've put on some muscle weight. I haven't lost anything overall, but I'm in much better shape. Oh, good. That's very good. Yes. So um, you also mentioned lampreys, L-A-M-P-R-E-Y-S. Yes, yes, lampreys. It's 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 like sardines. Well, it's odd. Yes, it it, uh, it's a dish. Lamprey was a was a great delicacy in uh, in the Middle Ages. In fact, one of the kings of England ate so much lamprey that he died of it. He died of a surfeit of lampreys. Um, and I always wondered what was so great about the lamprey that uh, that would make a king eat uh, eat too much. So I, I found a, a friend down in Bergerac, which is in the the middle of France, who still knew how to cook the lamprey, and so she cooked it for me. Um, it, it looks like a, a, an eel, um, but it's actually okay. more like a fish. And, and as okay. you say, uh, the, the flesh, in fact, tastes a bit like sardine. Um, uh-huh. it, it's cooked in a, in, a, in a sauce made of its own blood, which is a little nasty, but it tastes fine, actually. Yes, well, when I read a, something that says it's a giant worm that tastes like sardines, it seems to me it would be unappealing, but apparently people who get used to it like it. We're going to take a uh, break for a commercial, okay? Yes, absolutely. All right, so we'll come back in about a minute. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Legal Shield. Total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Brower. I'm back with my guest, John Baxter, who has written a wonderful book called The Perfect Meal in Search of the Lost Taste of France. And, John, before we go on, how can people find out about how to get your book? Well, on Amazon, of course, uh, the place everyone looks for books these days. Okay, uh, It's easy to find. Um, 
I have also a Facebook site and uh, a uh, web page. So uh, I think I'm fairly easy to find. You just Google John Baxter uh, uh, books okay. and you'll find me. Would you like to give out your website? Yes, it's easy. It's uh, all one word, johnbaxterparis.com. John Baxter Paris, all one word. Paris.com. Mm. That's nice and tidy. Okay, good. So people out there, you can find John Baxter on his website, johnbaxterparis.com. So, uh, John, you also mentioned a book you, writ- you wrote uh, before, the current one, called The Most Beautiful Walking in the World. That's right. The most beautiful walk in the world. Uh, it's a, it's a, in fact, it's a phrase. I'm sorry? It's called the most beautiful walk in the world. Exactly. And then as the subtitle Paris, or what do you say? Uh, a pedestrian in Paris, it's called oh, the subtitle. In Paris. And uh, people can also find that book too, right? Oh, absolutely. All my books, all, all well, not all 44 books I've written, but but all the recent ones anyway. Okay, so now when you just told me you you've written forty four books, how many how how quickly do you get through a book on the average? Like eight months, two years? How does it work? Yeah, well, it depends on the book. You know, you can imagine that uh, that writing a thirty thousand word book about uh, about Paris is fairly easy compared to say uh, writing writing a uh, hundred and fifty thousand word. A book about uh, about Robert De Niro, but uh, yeah. uh, yes, it balances out. It's about a book a year, about yeah. the same schedule as Woody Allen, in fact, with okay. movies. And do you ever um, have two or three books you're working on? Pretty much, uh, you just keep rotating before you finish any one of them. Oh well, that's what I'm doing at the moment. I, I'm working on one book. I've got another one coming out next April. I'm just I've just signed a contract for a third one, and I'm doing a Kindle single, as they're called for wow. uh, for Amazon. So yeah, I'm pretty thoroughly occupied. Your your middle name should be prolific. <laughs> it should be. I didn't. I don't have a middle name. We were too poor. Yes. Well, I yeah. My uh, I, I know people who don't have a middle name. Actually, my two adult children don't have a middle name, but you could if you wanted, John Prolific Baxter. Well, well in fact, uh, when I, I when I was confirmed, I was asked to take a uh, a, a, a middle name because uh, it's part of the Catholic ritual that you choose a saint's name, and uh, and I took Martin, and for a while I was known as John Martin Baxter, but but it didn't stick. I think that I yes. like the simplicity of John Baxter. Yes. So normally, um, when you're writing your books, are you enjoying the process most of the time? All the time. Yes, yeah. I don't, I've never written a book I didn't enjoy. Yeah, but what happens when you have to go back and reread everything and be sure it's you dialed all the I's and crossed all the T's? Oh, I don't. I don't mind the process. I think that's quite that inter- interesting because what one does, of course, is one one corrects things, one sees uh, things one didn't notice before, one improves on things. Yeah. I, I, I was just going through a little collection of of short fiction that I did, and, and thinking, yes, you know, I'll change that word, change that name, just yes. tweaking it a bit. Yes. So uh, when you're doing your writing, do you do it seven days a week, six days a week? And then how many hours a day? 
Oh, all day, every day, not all day, but every day. And certainly, yes, I, I get up very early. I start work about 4.30 in the morning. Uh, by the time uh, my wife gets up about 8 o'clock, I've kind of done the day's work in terms of new writing. So I spend the rest of the day doing research or uh, doing walks, uh, uh, sometimes uh, appearing at uh, events, festivals and so on. So um, it's, a, it's a pretty good regime, actually. Yes. And um, if you get up at 4.30, what time do you normally go to sleep? Oh, I do midnight, 1 o'clock, something like that. I see. I don't sleep very much. And then uh, do you do the same schedule on Saturdays and Sundays, or do you? Mm, sure. I see. Uh, one thing I do on Sundays, which I enjoy, is to uh, go to what are called brocantes, which you would call flea markets. Uh-huh. Because I, I collect rare books, and uh, they're a great place to look. I see. So it sounds to me like for you, your life is wonderful. I think so. Uh, I, I have no complaints. I, I guess yours is pretty good as well, though. Yes, but it, it's lovely to have uh, an occupation or more than one that you really love to do and that uh, gives you a lot of gratification. Well, it's the most important thing in the world, don't you think? To yeah. I think it was Scott Fitzgerald who said, you know, it, if you have found your work, then you have found everything. Uh, I think that's the, the, the great recipe for enjoying life is to be able to do something that you enjoy doing. So when you start work, you do so w- with enthusiasm. Yes. So I have another question to ask you that has nothing to do with the writing. Um, when you moved to France, you didn't know how to speak French, right? Very little. I picked up a, a few phrases, but and, uh, didn't and really understand did the you, language at all. And how long did it take you, by your standards, to be uh, good enough where you could understand and be understood? Yeah, the two things are very different. In fact, as I'm sure you know, that that's, it's it's much easier to formulate a sentence and speak it than it is to understand what people are saying to you. Yeah. Especially uh, in in France, where Paris, where the uh, the people speak in a very a very particular way, very fast, almost yeah. like a yeah. machine gun. Uh, I suppose I, I learned the some of the basic grammar in the first few weeks because after all I was the cook for for the two of us and uh, if you go to the market and you know that unless you can say I want a pound of potatoes you won't be eating dinner that night it gives you an incentive to uh, to learn the, the fra- that phrase at least yes so when you were learning how to speak French did you still have some kind of Australian accent uh, yes, I still do. And in, and in fact, uh, people say that our daughter, who speaks uh, English and French equally well and speaks English with no accent at all, yeah. that the, the only accent she has is just a kind of slight tinge of an Australian accent, I see. which How she's learned she? from me. How old is your daughter? 22. And what does she do for a living? Uh, she's studying journalism uh, in uh, London, as a matter of fact. I see. Oh, that's nice. Is, is that the only child you have? Yes, that's the only one. One yeah. is enough. If you if you have a if you have a, a child in your late forties, you know, you, it's very tiring. As I don't have to tell you, I'm sure. Yes. Well, it's really wonderful that you enjoy your life and that it's very gratifying for you. 
Well, so, yes, um, uh, I, I, we were just talking about this at dinner tonight with some friends from London uh-huh. and, and wondering why it is that we've got to where we, where we are. And I think it's because we've, we've gone with our instincts. Yeah. Very often, uh, that's the most important thing. We, we decided that, you know, we were, we were all ready to, to pull up stakes and move somewhere where we thought, uh, our lives would be better. And I think, uh, uh that's, that's, uh, is in some ways a secret of of life uh, of successful life at least in, in the sort of things we do in the yeah. arts uh, uh, and and in culture uh, that you have to be able to um, to move to go where the where the uh, the possibilities are it's very important that okay. mobility so your wife in france uh, is that where you met her or did you meet her in australia no, in fact, I met her in in uh, Virginia. I was teaching at a college in uh, Virginia, and she was uh, then a student. Uh, but uh, it was many years later that we uh, that we got together. But that's where we first met in uh, Roanoke, Virginia. I see. And so, uh, when did you rediscover her in France or elsewhere? No, it was, it was in, it was in Los Angeles and it was, uh, it was quite bizarre. I, I was hypnotized, uh, for a project and I'd never been hypnotized before. Uh-huh. And in the course of the hypnosis, uh, I had a, a sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, an insight, uh, uh-huh. that this woman was very important to me, even though I hadn't seen her for seven years. Oh, so I rang her up and asked her to come and visit me, and she came from Paris to, uh, to, uh, to Los Angeles, and three weeks later I sold up everything I owned and moved with her to Paris. That's a beautiful love story. It, it is, and it's, it's oh. been very successful, I'm happy to say. And what, and what does she do for... Uh an occupation. She makes a documentary film. She's a, a documentary filmmaker for television. And is, does she work uh, mainly in France, or does she go all over the world? How does what does she do? Well, she yes, she 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 makes films mostly for French television. But she was just in Rome last week, uh, making making two documentaries there. Uh, now she on next Friday she goes off to the south of France. She's filmed in Australia, uh, in the Pacific, uh, in in California, uh, many countries of yes. the world. So when she goes on these documentaries to film, roughly on the average, how long is she away from you? It it varies. Uh, it can be when she was in Australia, it was two months, I think. Um, but mostly, um, she she just uh, within Europe. You know, she's only away for a week uh, or ten days. Sometimes yeah, I even go with her, actually. Oh, but you go with her sometimes, but not all the time. Oh well, uh, there's some places I just as soon not go to. We we went to Berlin recently to make a movie in which I actually appear. But uh, on this last trip to Rome, I was too busy, so uh, she she just went with her crew. I see. So what, 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 probably what I'm getting at is when she's away from you, how is it for you? Do you miss her? Yes, of course, of course. But uh, we both have our work, and we keep yeah. in touch, uh, yeah. and. Um, no, no, we, 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 we're, I think we're a very successful couple in that we, each of us have our own work and we enjoy doing it and we enjoy being together that much more because we're not together all the time. We're not 
It's not as though we, one of us was forced to uh, to yeah. live a, a lifestyle that he or she didn't uh, didn't right. enjoy. We, we our lives are complementary. Yes. So if you didn't have the experience of being hypnotized, you may never have had her as a wife. No. Interesting, isn't it? Yes. What prompted you to want to be hypnotized? Um, it was, <laughs> it's odd. Uh, I had a friend who was uh, interested in alternative religions. I see. And uh, she was, uh, she encouraged me. In fact, the two of us did it together. We we went around um, uh, checking out various sorts of uh, creeds and uh, and belief systems around uh, Los Angeles, of which, as you know, there are, there's no shortage. Oh, really? And yes, exactly. uh, this... Um, the man who who did the hypnosis, um, I've often wondered uh, um, what what became of him. In in fact, um, Do you he his was doing uh, um, Joe 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 Joe. What um, uh, Jewish name? I can't, I can't remember offhand. Okay. I'll, maybe I'll think of it. Um, uh, he was a. Uh, he lived out in Commerce, which is a suburb of Los yes. Angeles. He worked in uh, one of the mental hospitals there. He used um, uh, hypnosis as, as in his uh, his work, and yes. um, but he was pursuing a project um, where he hoped uh, to uh, find people whose soul had transmigrated um, uh, from you know body to body, and that they might have known Christ in an earlier life. Yeah. And I didn't particularly believe in this, in this, uh, in this thought or this idea, but, yeah, I, don't but uh, I was happy to, um, to help him out and agree yeah. to be hypnotized in case I, I was an example of a, of somebody whose soul had transmigrated, but it seemed that I wasn't uh, okay. apparently. Um, yeah. So, uh, one detail I'm not clear on. Um, your wife, did she grow up in France or did she grow up elsewhere? No, she's Parisian, uh, born and bred in Paris. I see. I see. So, you, so that having her around to help you with the with the language was nice too. You probably learned quicker having her around so much. Yes, uh, she didn't really help me with the language. Um, uh, the French don't do that. Uh, French are very, very protective of their language. They, they don't really like to, uh, to teach people. What they do is they correct you, which is very frustrating. Yeah. Um, and, uh, she certainly does that and did that. Uh, so it's one way, I suppose one can say that that was one, one way of, uh, of helping me learn. Yes. Yeah. So, um, when you have your dreams that you remember, are any of them in French? No, no, I don't dream, in fact. Uh, it's one of the odd things about me. Uh, I sleep very, very deeply and dreamlessly. Well, most likely you do dream, but you're not aware of them. Yeah, that's what everybody says. But uh, uh, It's like the tree that falls in the forest, isn't it? You know, if you don't hear it, can you really say that it exists? Yeah, exactly, yes. So getting back to your cuisines for a while... Um, I'm sure I'm not going to say this with the right uh, pronunciation, but Conviture VX Garçon? Uh, Confiture right? de, de Vieux Garçon. Uh, yes, uh, Confiture, it, it means uh, basically pre- old man's preserves. Um, it's, 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 a, 
I think probably it exists uh, in the United States, uh, probably out in uh, in Vermont or somewhere like that. They they do this. Basically, the idea is that you you take a large sort of crock, a uh, big uh, yes. uh, some some large container, and and when when the say the strawberries are nice and ripe, you you take a, a sort of quart of strawberries and you put them in the bottom of the of the crock and you pour in uh, brandy or, or vodka or some kind of alcohol yeah. and then with each new fruit you put that in and you pour in some more alcohol until it's uh, it's topped up to the very top then you leave it uh, until the winter and and it turns out what you've got is a is a very alcoholic uh, kind of uh, preserves which i have to say is delicious uh, on ice cream or even just for itself so if you eat too much of it you just you'd get drunk yes you do i see so, so uh, when you eat this ice cream covered with this brandy or whatever it is, um, mm. is it a super, super delicious treat? It's not bad, actually. Uh, it depends wait, wait, how wait. well it's. It's like wait, any wait, wait, dish. Wait. It's not bad. Is different than is it? Was it super delicious? No, no. Okay. Uh, it, it, my, my point was that if it's if it's done well, yeah. it's delicious. And if it's done badly, even then, it's not too bad. But uh, if you really need to have somebody, it's like anything, like any dish. You know, some some people are, are terrible cooks and some people are good. Uh, and even with a dish like this, it needs a certain finesse. You yeah. need to think about the right fruits to go in and you need to think about the the uh, the best quality uh, of alcohol as well and also you need to uh, to eat it uh, with a little discrimination because too much of it and the the alcohol takes over yes and then you have the ox the oh yes tell me about the ox that was remarkable uh, i'd always wanted to attend the roasting of an entire ox yeah because to, to me that was something it, it came out of, you know, Roman times. It came yeah. out of the Bible. Uh, the, the idea of roasting a whole animal uh, to, as a feast. But, of course, it's not something that people do very often. Uh, but we found a place where they still do it, and we, uh, my wife and I went up there and, and we, we watched the 1,000-pound uh, ox being roasted. Uh -huh. And then we went into a tent with 500 other people and we ate we ate the whole ox, and I have to say it was delicious. Okay, so how long, how many hours or days or weeks would it take for an ox to get roasted? Well, not that long, actually, because what they do is they roast it for about eight or ten hours yeah. whole. Then they take it away. They cut off the outer parts, which are already cooked. And then they take the less well-cooked and raw uh, inner parts, and these they cook as a, sort of as a barbecue, uh -huh. uh, a barbecue in the, in the European sense of the word, in that they grill them. They grill them on an open, open fire. I see. And uh, so we ate a combination of the slow-cooked meat from the exterior and the, the more quickly-cooked uh, meat from inside. I have to say they were both wonderfully tender. I see. Now, um, is this kind of uh, feast very infrequent? Not really, no. Uh, it used to be more so. Uh, but uh, as you can imagine, it's, uh, you, it needs to be done for an entire village. You, you need 500 people at least uh, to eat uh, uh, the animals. So that's not always easy to find. And 
what aged animal do they use to uh, roast? Uh, I'm not sure. Probably a year or two. It's a young animal, tender, uh-huh. very tender. And then for the ox that are lucky who don't get roasted, what do they do in, in Paris and in France? Oh well, I suppose they end up being being butchered and and, and sold in butcher shops. Uh, the the difference with the the ox that we uh, we had roasted was that it was roasted whole. But I suppose uh, otherwise it would have been cut up and uh, and would have turned up in uh, your butcher shop as uh, as sirloin and uh, and rib roast. I see. So in France, there's probably uh, a lot of different kinds of animals that get uh, cooked, roasted or otherwise, that aren't in the, in the United States. Is that correct? Um, I don't know. I suppose it's more the parts of the animal. Uh, I, th- I think we all eat beef and lamb and, uh, and chicken and pork and so on. Uh, uh-huh. But the thing is that the French also like those parts of the animals, which I think Americans might not necessarily like. Um, for instance, with, with the pig, um, the, um, the, the nose, the snout is, is pickled and uh, served as a delicacy. And, um, uh, I, I, there's a, a particular sort of sausage called andouillette, uh, which uses, uh, all the parts of the, of the animal, including some unexpected ones. Uh, it, it's particularly, uh, regarded as a, as a, as a delicacy if you use the asshole of the pig in the, uh, in the, ch- in the uh, sausage as well. Did you say asshole? That's what I said, yes. Okay. The, the true de cool, as they call it here. So if I you put that in, uh, that's considered a great delicacy. All the uh, microorganisms that might be bad get get kicked out I'm of I'm sorry? The well, uh, when you mentioned the pig's ass, yes. uh, if that part of the body is going to be eaten, hopefully it would be well cooked so that uh, the human being ingesting this would not get sick. Oh, absolutely. But there, you know, the, the, with the sausage, of course, sausage is, is always, it's usually salted and minced and, and cooked very heavily. Uh, after yeah. all, the most sausages in, uh, in France are made up of, uh, partly the intestines right. of the animal anyway. That's, uh, quite common. Yeah. The French love, uh, that sort of thing, tripe, uh, uh, kidneys, liver, uh, sweetbreads, uh, almost anything, in fact. Yeah. So when, when you've eaten pig nose, did that taste good? Well, it's, uh, it tastes like pig, it tastes like pork. It's a bit gelatinous. See, what they do is they, they cook it and then they, they serve it with a, with a very tart, uh, vinegary dressing. It's called museau here. I see. And it, it's, a, it's a starter, a sort of, uh, um, uh, what would you call it? Um, uh, a kind of, um, a appetizer, you would say. Uh-huh. It's, it's quite nice. Yes. So, um, when you when you normally cook a meal for you and your wife at home, how long does it take from the time you start preparing the food until you're ready to start eating the food? Uh, it depends what it is, of course. But I mean, take what I cooked tonight. Uh, I cooked uh, a shoulder of rolled shoulder of lamb uh, with uh, a, a mash of sweet potatoes. Uh, uh-huh. with uh, cream cheese and uh, uh, some boiled potatoes and some carrots cooked with uh, with caraway seed. That took about an hour, hour and a half, I suppose. And so much of that time, well, it's, it's in the oven, right, cooking? 
Yes, well, you put the you put the joint in the oven, and then you begin the vegetables. So uh, the idea, the art, one of the arts of cooking is to bring everything to the table at the same time. So every, every everything is ready just at the moment when people uh, want yes. to sit down. And apparently, at this point, you're very good at doing that. I, I imagine. Yes, I am. I, I can say that without false modesty. I've been doing it long enough to. Yes. Um, I have a sort of in inbuilt timer. I think. Yes. So do you ever um, end up eating food you don't particularly like? No. no. I sometimes have to do it at uh, the homes of other people when I'm served yeah. something I don't like. I don't like to leave it leave it on the plate, but I might I might sort of nibble at it and push it around a bit. But, exactly. Uh, uh, we all do that, don't we? Yes. And then um, let's say hypothetically you're sick for some reason. Then will your wife do the cooking if she's at home? No, my my wife could burn water. <laughs> no, I I would probably look look for something in the freezer. So let's say you were very sick and let's and nauseous and you just couldn't be eating. What would she eat for the for the evening? Just some crackers. Well, she'd look in the she'd look in the freezer. <laughs> okay, thank you. So what would she do if uh, you weren't available to cook? She would just eat some crackers and cheese. Well, probably it's cheese, especially she loves cheese. I the French, the French in general love cheese. Yes. Well, that's nice. Well, we're going to um, have about maybe thirty more seconds. Anything you would like to say? I would we... like people to go out and buy my book, "The Perfect Meal in Search of the Lost uh, Tastes of France" by uh, Harper Collins. Uh, available at all good bookstores and on Amazon. Okay, and they also can check out John Baxter. And find all your books. That's right. JohnBaxterParis.com. All the details are there. Well, I'll tell you what. It's been an absolute pleasure having you as my guest. I really enjoyed you a lot. And uh, if you're ever coming to uh, Southern California, let me know. I I certainly will, Jonathan. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you again for listening today. Tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for Human Behavior, What a Trip with Dr. Jonathan Brower on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have fun experiencing your human behavior. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Legal Shield. Total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. Brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.